0: Good morning, church. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 11. And if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, uh, please feel free to use one of these pew Bibles. It looks exactly like this. And it should be in a slot in the pew in front of you. And it's on page 964. Page 964. We'll begin with chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge it that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ you will boast of us as we will boast of you Because I was sure of this. I wanted to become come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I Wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over you, over your faith but that we work with you for your joy for you stand firm in your faith for i made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you for if i cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom i have pained and i wrote as i did so that when i came i might not suffer pain for those who should have made me rejoice for i felt sure of all of you that my joy would be that for the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive I also forgive. Indeed what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be Outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs Let's pray Father we thank you for your word this morning Father we pray that as Toby delivers this morning's message from 2nd Corinthians Lord that your Holy Spirit will apply truth and obedience in our hearts We pray that you would give Toby strength and stamina as he ministers to us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Being under the weather, I always... uh... I'm often reminded um, of how those of us who are sick ought to obey the golden rule and treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Uh, so if I don't shake your hand, it's because if you were like this, I wouldn't want you shaking mine. Uh, but uh, I, I actually hate that because I love uh, shaking your hands and embrace and, and hugging and, and, and the warmth of fellowship that that is between us. Uh, but just remember it's the golden rule. Um, as we come here this morning, back to Second Corinthians, uh, I know many of us would remember our days uh, in English class, whether it was in high school or in uh, college, and maybe you read Shakespeare's comedy, "Much Ado," about Nothing." Um, but that phrase basically means to make a big fuss over something that's really insignificant. It is to make a mountain out of a molehill. Now, probably none of you have ever done that or experienced that, so let me give you a couple of examples of how that might work. So let's say in your office, and uh, you know, the boss comes in and says, I need this task done. I know this is not your responsibility, but so-and-so's out, and I just need you to pick, I need you to help out and pick up the slack and do this. And a task that takes 10 minutes with the wrong heart doing that task can turn into an entire day of complaint that even goes into the next day. "I can't believe the boss came in here," and da, 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 da. you know what I'm saying." So it happens in marriage, doesn't it? It's not unusual for me to sit across from a couple who needs uh, counseling, and, and they're stuck in some pattern of <coughs> excuse me they're stuck in some pattern of conflict, and I'll ask. Well, give me an example of how one of these conflicts goes so that I can listen for information and and have some things that will help us along the way. So how did it get started? I don't know. Well, tell me, what was the issue? I mean, what was the circumstance that you started to, to, to fight about? Well, I don't know. And by the time they actually remember, it turns out to be something very insignificant. You know, who left the fence gate open? or who was supposed to pick up milk or uh, we're running late to church again this week uh, because of somebody in our house who can't quite get ready uh, at the right time. It's always something small, but isn't it interesting how something small can explode into a war of words? Isn't it interesting how our hearts, our sinful hearts can take something that ought to be no big deal And just blow it up into World War III. Any of you ever experienced that? I'm not asking if you caused World War III. Though we should probably be asking ourselves that question. I'm asking you, have you ever been around when World War III started over nothing? It happens all the time. And as we come back to 2 Corinthians this morning, actually we find another example. Paul is starting the main body of this letter. You remember his introduction focused on the afflictions of life in general. And now, actually, Paul has to deal with an affliction that's come his way at the hand of the Corinthians. Now, it's one thing for people outside the church to attack you, isn't it? It's another thing altogether for your brothers and sisters in Christ to seem to be doing it. And this church is questioning his integrity. They're questioning his character. They're questioning his honesty. And why? Why are they doing this? Is it because he's compromised the gospel? No. Is it because he's become manipulative in his ways? No. Is it because he's now one of those preachers who's only after their money? No. Is it because he's compromised biblical morality? No. Well, then what is it? Can I tell you what it was? It's because his travel plans changed. You heard that right. The church is stirred up, doubting Paul's reliability because his travel plans change. Now, travel plans change all the time, and those of us who are in Guatemala know that. Sometimes it's just completely out of your hand, and you get to spend three more days in Guatemala, and you didn't plan on spending three more days in Guatemala. But Paul's plans change all the time. In Acts chapter 16, uh, Luke records in verses 6 to 10 that Basically, Paul wanted to go one place, and the Holy Spirit shut that down, and wanted to go to another place, and the Holy Spirit shut that down, and then he gets a vision in the night to come over to Macedonia and help. And so he goes there, and it's attributed to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he's writing to that church, and he basically says, I really wanted to come to you, but I couldn't. Why? Because Satan hindered me. Even when he writes to Timothy and Titus, when he really wants them to come and visit him, do you know what he uses on more than one occasion? Do your best. Do your best to come to me soon. Why? Because Paul knows travel plans change. Paul operates on the principle that's laid down in James chapter 4. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In fact, that's almost precisely what Paul had told them. If you take your Bible and just turn left one page and go to 1 Corinthians 16, you'll see this. In verses 5 to 7, Paul writes, "...I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing." I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. And what we find out is the Lord didn't permit. He had planned on a longer visit. He had planned on wintering in Corinth. But things changed. Now, uh, and we saw that in verses 15 and 16. He doesn't say why the plans changed, but suddenly, instead of a long visit... He was planning to make two shorter visits. One while he's on his way to, Mas- to Macedonia and then another one on his way back. But after the first visit, what he calls the painful visit, Paul decides it's best not to go back for a second visit. Look at verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And then chapter 2, verse 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit. So you get, the, you, get, you get the circumstance here, right? He had planned on a long visit to Corinth. Things changed. Don't know why. He says, well, what I wanted to do was actually come through on the way to Macedonia and then stop through on the way back. And these would be shorter visits. And then he says... I decided that was not the best thing to do, so I wasn't going to come to you a second time. And so now Paul's having to defend his ministry as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ because he changed his travel plans. Doesn't that seem like much ado about nothing to you? His travel plans change a big uproar over such a small change. Can you imagine Christians getting so worked up over something like this? Can you imagine Christians gossiping, having hallway conversations, complaining, questioning motives, slandering character, threatening to leave a church over something so small? Can you imagine having, being so focused on the temporal that you lose sight of what's eternal? That's not a rhetorical question. Can you imagine people doing that? You don't even have to imagine, do you? We could probably just tell stories. Modern-day illustrations abound of this sort of thing. I will not spend time telling stories about such things. But you're reasonable people. I mean, you know that this is a sad reality that's everywhere. It can, it can crop up anywhere. It can even crop up here. Within our own congregation. And in many situations, it seems there's often an individual or a small group that's kind of stoking the fire and stirring the pot. And in Corinth, it's these so called super apostles, these teachers who are claiming to be greater than Paul and they're working to undermine his ministry. And the fact that Paul's travel plans change seems to be a prime opportunity to pounce. You see this? This is the kind of apostle you've been listening to. He says one thing, but he completely does another. You really think you can listen to this guy? Come around to our event. We will gladly teach you. We're far greater than this one. He's so weak. He's so weak, he can't even keep his travel plans straight. What you need is someone like me. Now, Paul is going to defend himself because apparently the scheme's working. It's not just the the super apostles. Apparently, there are those within the church who are questioning Paul. And so, he's writing to defend himself. And many would have Paul, you know what many people would have Paul do? Fight fire with fire. Just write the church off. Paul, you know what we should do? We, you should just have your own little complaint session. You and Timothy meet up at Bob Evans or, or Starbucks or, you know, make some vague Facebook posts that are really pointed you know, and just fuss about how immature the church is and how they need to get over it. Now, sadly, it wouldn't take you a long journey on the Internet to find such things written by church leaders today about their own congregations. But Paul doesn't do that. His apostleship and his relationship to them are too important, not for his own sake, because, but because of the gospel he preaches among them. It is for their sake that he is going to defend his ministry. And they need to see that his plan changed, but his integrity didn't. His plan changed, but his love for them didn't. I mean, friends, integrity and love are two critical marks of faithful ministry. It wasn't just critical for Paul's ministry to be marked by integrity and love, but it's critical for our ministries to be marked by that as well. And that's what we're reminded of here today, that faithful ministry must be characterized by integrity and love. So let's just take a look at it under two headings. First, Paul's integrity. Paul's integrity. It seems to be, the church seems to think he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's going to come for a long visit, and then he doesn't. He's going to come twice. And then he doesn't. I mean, maybe this guy isn't led by the Spirit at all. Maybe he just does whatever strikes him. This is why he asked these questions in verse 17, these rhetorical questions. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He comes directly to answer... What is apparently a very strong accusation, something that probably came up in this painful visit that he had with them. And so we notice that when it comes to his integrity, first he declares it. He declares his integrity right out of the gate in verse 12. Look at it. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. He has lived his life before them. He has ministered to them. He has worked among them with sincerity, uh, simplicity and godly sincerity. In other words, he hasn't been double-minded. He's been simple in his dealings with them. He's been holy in his dealings with them. He's not been underhanded or crafty. He's been sincere. He's been honest. He's been pure. He's been blameless. And Paul makes this clear because his integrity as an apostle is linked to the integrity of his message. Godly character strengthens and reinforces gospel ministry. Don't ever lose sight of that. As you seek to do ministry among other people, godly character strengthens and reinforces gospel ministry. I mean, that's true today, isn't it? When we consider the Bible's teaching on, say, the the qualifications for pastors and elders, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you find words like, they must be above reproach, right? They must be respectable, gentle, not quarrelsome, a lover of good, upright. This is why Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Not just on the teaching, but on yourself. Now, men in this room, God may raise you up to do some kind of ministry. He may raise you up to be an elder one day. Boys, teenagers, listen carefully. God may raise you up to be a pastor, an elder, a missionary. And it is absolutely true that your theology matters. It is absolutely true that your teaching matters. But without godly integrity, the best theologian and the most compelling teacher are emptied of their usefulness before God. You can only go so far on great theology and the right kind of teaching if your character doesn't match. And I will tell you, it's far easier to get away with good theology and good teaching without godly character if you just have this public traveling ministry. You can't get away with that in a local church because you are meant to know me even as I am meant to know you. Godly character strengthens and reinforces gospel ministry. And so that's why Paul puts it out there. But it's not just for those who are pastors and elders. This week, as you're sharing the gospel with that friend, your life, your character will either amplify the message that you are sharing with them or it will close ears and hearts because there's no way you believe that. Look at how you live. Look at your anger. Look look at how harsh you are with other people in the office. Look at how you treat your wife. Listen to the complaints. This is what life change looks like? I don't need a life change like that. It's also true in our parenting, isn't it? If If your primary parenting strategy is do as I say and not as I do, that will only go so far because at some point that strategy seems to be working until your children begin to develop and they're like well what dad says is not what dad does what mom says is not what mom does and it sees right through it and what you can end up with is children who know how to talk all the Christian lingo but don't care to obey it at all And that's a struggle for all of us. I was just talking with a man this week about how parenting exposes our own sinfulness and places that we need to grow and keep changing. That's true of me, it's true of me this week. I see places where I have to grow, I have to keep growing as a dad. Character matters. Integrity matters. But Paul doesn't just declare it. He defends it. In verses uh, 17 to 21, he defends his integrity. Listen Listen to the way he does this. Okay? He asks that question, was I vacillating? Was I just doing this according to the flesh? And then in verse 18, listen to what he says. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. That's some pretty strong language. For someone to say, well, do you think God's faithful? (laughs) If you think God's faithful, then you'll know our word was not yes and no. He ties his integrity to the faithfulness of God. So he goes on. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes for the promises of God find their yes in him that's why through him that, we, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory so he focuses on the faithfulness of God in defending his integrity he says God has stamped every promise he has ever made with yes by Jesus Christ so in the old testament God promises a prophet who will speak his words faithfully and perfectly and will be better than Moses. God promises a priest who will be the perfect mediator between God and man. He promises a king who will rule and reign in perfect righteousness and justice. He promises that he'll save a people for himself from every nation. He promises to forgive sin to remember it no more by providing a sacrifice, one who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, one who will suffer wounds that bring healing to our soul. God promises a new heaven and new earth where His people will dwell forever. And friends, we don't have to wonder if God will keep those promises. Because in Jesus Christ, He has declared yes to every one of them and more. Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus was pierced and crushed for us to save us. Jesus was raised from the dead, guaranteeing our resurrection and the renewal of all things. That's good news. You don't have to wonder about eternal life. This is why John can say at the end of his first letter, I write these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. The historical evidence for for the fact that we who believe in Jesus will have eternal life is the resurrection from the dead. That's why it's so central. That's why Paul says you're just in your sins if Jesus didn't, didn't raise from the dead. You're just a bunch of fools. You're the most pitiful people on the planet if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Toby's wasting his life preaching about Jesus if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Every promise receives its yes in Jesus. And then Paul says, This is the God who's been at work through him. Verse 21, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So if they believe all of this, Paul is basically saying, If you believe this, if you believe that God sent me, if you believe that God anointed me to work among you, if you believe that God's Spirit is in me and is working through me, then you should know that what I'm saying is true. I haven't lied to you about God, I haven't lied to you about His character, I haven't lied to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would I ever lie about something so small as why my travel plans change? So he defends his integrity. Now look, there are times when we're wrongfully accused of things and we just simply suffer it for the sake of Jesus. But there are times to speak. Not so that we can just defend ourselves, but we we cannot sit by if accusations are going to erode gospel ministry opportunities. We can't just sit by and say, well, we'll just figure it out. We don't care about our name so much as the name we proclaim, as the only one under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if something is going to tear down an avenue of ministry, we should care very much to stop that from happening. We should care very much to make sure, first, that we are above reproach in all things. But secondly, when that's questioned and the gospel is going to be hindered among us, that we deal with it correctly. Now, Paul goes on here. Still, he's going to talk more about why his plans change, but he moves from his integrity to his love for them. So that's the second thing to consider, Paul's love. Love, love is essential for all ministry. I mean, we love because we were first loved. Paul will later say the love of Christ is, Controls us, compels us. Jesus calls us to love as He loved. Even as I have served you and shown my love for you in this, so you ought to love by serving one another. And in His first letter, He makes this so clear, doesn't He, in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13? isn't it interesting how much we would exalt one who just can speak in the tongues of men and of angels who has prophetic powers and all kinds of wonderful mysteries and knowledge to share one who's so sacrificial to give away all that they have maybe even their own life and Paul says there's actually something else that matters here not just those things so he says if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love There's no charisma in the pulpit that makes up for a lack of love. There is no great comprehension of the Bible and the capacity to communicate it that is helpful apart from love. There is no giving of all of your financial resources and all of your time and all of your talent that's worth anything if you don't have love. Love is central. As we were doing various ministries in Guatemala with the team, one of the prayers that was often prayed was, Lord, help us to love these kids with the love that you have shown us. Because love is central. And Paul loves these Corinthians. The fact that he would make these visits, the fact that he would write the letters, the fact that he would care about keeping the avenue of ministry open is a demonstration of that fact. So notice that first, his love is his explanation. He doesn't just defend his integrity. He explains in terms of love why his plan changed. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again. It was to spare them. Why? Verse 24, because he works with them for their joy... So they'll stand firm in their faith. So rather than go down in person, he's going to write a letter, a letter that we don't have. In verse 3 of chapter 2, I wrote as I did, so when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Why did he write that letter? Why did he cancel the second trip? Look at the last phrase of chapter 2, verse 4. To let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul is in anguish here. He hates being at odds with this church. He hates it. As he writes, verse 4 of chapter 2 says, he's in anguish of, His heart is in anguish, he's in much affliction, he has many tears. I mean, just imagine him writing this letter, seeking their repentance, seeking to fix things, and tears are falling from his eyes on the paper, staining it. Why? Because he loves them. He wants things to be right. He wants their relationship to be marked by joy once again. That he will bring them joy, and they will bring him joy, and it will be mutually beneficial. But love means he can't just not confront them about what they're doing. This following after these other teachers and turning their back on him and on the gospel he preaches. It doesn't mean he's just going to let it go, it actually means just the opposite. He'll speak the truth to them in love. He'll call them to repent, but he will do it with tears in his eyes and anguish in his heart because he takes no pleasure in their pain. Every parent in here would tell you there is both... The joy of knowing that a parent is obedient when they are disciplining their children at the same time that there is anguish in their heart over the pain that it will bring to their children. Both happen at the same time. Can I tell you those are some of my least favorite moments as a parent when the whole day has gone sideways. And it seems like it just seems like one discipline after the other on this day with this particular child. There's nothing fun about that. We are faithful and obedient, knowing that our obedience brings joy, knowing that obedience will be for the good of our children, knowing that obedience honors the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are just times that it is flat-out hard and tear-causing to have to do those things because there's nothing enjoyable about it. The joy comes afterwards in the long view. In that moment, it's painful. Anguish of heart, tears in his eyes, but doing the right thing because he loves them. I've told one of of my children more than once that Daddy has to discipline you because God has commanded it. But also, I don't want you to grow up to be a fool. And if this pattern continues, you'll grow up to be a fool. So I'm going to use what God has given me to seek to help you to not be a fool both in teaching and in discipline and in example all of it working together not just discipline and Paul is doing that here because he loves them i wonder where are you serving right now maybe you're just utilizing the dining room table because you know that the bible says we ought to be hospitable without grumbling so you're using your dining room table to serve others maybe you're part of the team that goes down every month to good news mission on the praise team, doing audiovisual, maybe you're leading a growth group, maybe you're teaching children. maybe you're on the missions team. maybe you serve in the nursery. Uh, maybe you're on the hospitality team. Maybe you're thinking about taking up, helping out with the security team. Maybe you're a deacon, maybe you're an elder. The question is, what is motivating you to serve? Is it love for Christ? Is it love for others? Do you rejoice when it's time to serve? Or do you just look forward, oh, it's finally over. Just get through it. Look, I've been on both sides of that. There is no joy in the just getting through mindset to ministry. None whatsoever. But when we think about what Jesus Christ has done for us and the fact that he would take a wretch like me and allow me to do any kind of profitable ministry in the lives of others, that should produce great joy that I get to do anything for anybody. What motivates us? Spurgeon uh, once, in one of his sermons, said this Charles Spurgeon, I like to see Christian workers fall in love with their spheres. I never knew a man to succeed among a people unless he preferred them to all others as the objects of his care. Paul changed his plans because he loves this church, just plain and simple. But his love isn't just his explanation to them. His love is an example for them. Okay? Now listen to verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote... That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, as you can tell, these verses are focused on restoring one who's been disciplined by the church. Some say it's the same man that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who is in heinous sexual sin there. Some believe it is another person altogether. I tend to believe it's the same man, but I don't think absolute uh, certainty is actually possible. What is possible, is it, what is known, is that this man is disciplined out of the church. He has been disciplined by the church. And there's some kind of hesitation in the church about taking him back. And we know that if you look in verse 7, he says this punishment, uh, yeah." so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. That rather turn speaks of doing something on the contrary, doing something against what is expected. So, the man, so in other words, the man who has been disciplined may not ever expect to be taken back. And quite frankly, the church may never expect to be taking him back. But what Paul says is, on the contrary, contrary to your expectations, you should forgive him and comfort him and receive him back. Turn to him, not away from him. Obey the Lord's teaching in this. And he says, if you don't, notice what he says would happen. He's speaking positively, but the negative implication is that if they don't, in verse 11, Satan will have outwitted them. Satan will have gotten the best of them. Satan will have convinced them of a lie. That somehow what he really needs is tough love that says, You're never coming back in here, Bubba. How awful would it be if the Lord Jesus did that with us? Oh no, this time you've gone too far. You're out. How sweet that when Jesus looks on us, he has compassion. And he calls us to do the same thing with others. but you don't understand how many times this guy has sinned against me and he just keeps coming back over and over and he keeps saying he repents. Boy, I know it's hard, but you know what Jesus said? If he comes to you seven times a day and says, I repent, forgive him. When we understand the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, it, is, it is so easy to forgive. Susan and I were in a situation uh, within the last couple of weeks where someone was asking us for forgiveness about something. And like the words were already halfway out my mouth. I mean, they just started talking. I'm just, I want to forgive. I want this to, be, you know, I just want, I want it to be right. I'm not always like that. Because sometimes I think I've got a better handle on what you need to do to get back in relationship with me. But I'm telling you, by the grace of God, those words should be ones that tumble out of our mouths freely to anyone who asks. Because forgiven people forgive people. Otherwise, Satan outwits them. Now, by God's grace, in the last 10 years, there have only been a handful of situations where we've had to do what the Corinthian church had to do. Remove someone from the church because of unrepentant sin. It's always been like Paul with, with anguish in our hearts. And when I explain this in the membership process, what church discipline is, I've told them, When we've done that, and I've stood here, the only thing that I hear is weeping. I hear sniffles as this happens. There is no sense in which we take that kind of pleasure in it, some kind of strange, prideful pleasure. And only once, and I will tell you, it's not a common occurrence at all. Only once has the one come back who was removed. But I will tell you, and if you, here, if you were here, you would know, I will never forget the Sunday that we came to the Lord's table. After this one confessed sin and asked our forgiveness. To stand at the Lord's table... And with joyful tears to take him back in. About a year after that, I was playing golf with him. And I said, so how's it going? You know, how how is it being back in the church? I mean, I, I didn't really know what to expect. He said five words. It's like I never left. It's like I never left. His words were a testimony of God's grace in this church. Of the fact that in that case, with God's help, we were not outwitted by Satan. And that's what Paul is telling these folks. Now, I'm thankful for these verses. I'm thankful that that church discipline can reach its desired end. But it almost feels like we're off topic a little bit here, isn't it? I mean, that's incredible. So you could just sit right in those six, seven verses and just relish them and think about them and all their implications. But it seems a little detached from what he had been saying. But actually, it's a direct implication of what he's saying. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls the church to be imitators of me. And actually, as he does this, he is calling them to do the same. What did Paul do for them as a church? He spared them excessive pain by canceling his second visit. What is he calling them to do? Verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. You should do something against expectation or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. They are calling them to spare this man. Just as I changed my plans, Paul said, you must change your posture to this disciplined man. Why? Because I love you. Why should you do it? Because you love him. In fact, that's what he goes on to say. Paul's compassion was a demonstration of his love. And then what does he say in verse 8? I beg you to affirm your love for him. Paul is saying my love for you is not only the explanation of why my plans changed. My love for you is, why, is an example for you to follow in this circumstance where there is one who has been grieved, who, has ex- who could have excessive sorrow. Oh sure, you could pile it on and overwhelm him but you should rather turn and forgive him and show compassion and show love to him. Now that's challenging, isn't it? Not just his call to the church is challenging. You know what else is challenging to me? The fact that Paul is saying, look at how I loved you, and then you go and do the same thing. if everybody around you in your life followed the example of how you love others would that be a good thing if they treated their enemies the way that you treat yours if they if they treated strangers and their neighbors the way that you treat yours if the way if they talked about fellow Christians the way that you talk about fellow Christians If their attitude and their actions and their words were patterned after yours, would love be a word to describe what you do? It's a challenging thing, but this is precisely what Paul is saying. Paul is not proud of himself. Paul recognizes that the grace of God has been at work in him and now he loves this church whereas before grace he was glad to stamp out any church that he could find. Burn it to the ground. Get all the people inside in prison. Round them up. String them up. But grace has so changed him that those whom he once hated he now loves And he's saying, be changed by grace. Love him. Follow my example. Faithful ministry must be characterized by integrity and by love. Faithfulness is not just limited to our words or to our theology. Do we walk with integrity? Do we have genuine love for others? If not, Paul would call us to follow his example. I just picked this up this morning. I remember reading this book uh, many, many years ago. It's a book by Kent and Barbara Hughes called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. It's a wonderful book. Just picking it up, I'm reminded I need to read it again. But he says this. He had given... uh, He says, one can be regarded as hugely successful in the ministry and yet be a failure. It is possible to give people exactly what they need, the practical exposition of God's Word, inspiring worship, programs that wonderfully meet human needs, and yet be a failure. It is possible to be held up as a paragon of success and to receive the ardent accolades of one's people and be a failure. He says that on the heels of describing the incident in Moses' life when what should have been marked as a really successful ministry failed because... Of Moses' lack of faithfulness to God's words about speaking to the rock rather than striking it. And that chapter is titled Success is Faithfulness. Success is faithfulness. Consider your own life, your own ministry. Understanding that integrity and love mark faithfulness. Are you faithful? where God has put you, in your home, at your job, within the church? Would those who serve with you say you're faithful? If, if the Lord were to get you, give you a written evaluation of your ministry, do you think He would say you've been faithful? Those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are stewards of this ministry, must be faithful. Faithful. We must be faithful. And our integrity will show it, and our love for the Lord Jesus and our love for others will show it as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you, thankful for your goodness to us, thankful that every promise that you have made is yes in Jesus Christ. And we want to pray for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you will open their eyes, that they will see their sin and see what you have provided in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that they will turn to him in faith. We pray, Lord, that we will be a congregation marked by faithfulness, not just faithful in words, but faithful in character, in the integrity we have as we walk before you. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. (coughs) Help us to love others with the love with which we've been loved. And in that sense... Help us to be successful in doing the ministry to which you've called us. We pray, O God, that, that as we seek to serve you by serving others, that your grace will empower us. so that we will be faithful and so that we will not be outwitted by the evil one. Help us this week to be men and women of love and of integrity for the sake of our Savior whose integrity is perfect and whose love is perfect and whose love has transformed us. Make us more like Jesus this week. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.